Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Good morning and welcome to Grace-Based Discipline. Um, Adam is gone. He uh, is supposed to be in, on his way to Florida. He was going to Italy with his family. And, uh, of course, one thing led to another, which led to another, which led to another, which brought Florida on the map. Um, so he is not here right now and is supposed to be back next Monday. So you will have me um, this week and next week, assuming that everything is zipping along um, from a church standpoint. Um, and um, if you need to miss, then we're going to record everything and let you, let you know what's going on. I've got the, the um, schedule up here on the board for you. Adam and I met last week. And we decided that um, we are going to finish the Sunday before Easter. Um, after Easter, attendance generally begins to um, plummet uh, among all of the, the church activities just because the weather changes and family situations uh, seem to shift. So next week we're going to do video six, and then we'll do our discussion, then we'll do video seven, and that will be our last one. And uh, we've got Easter um, coming up here on the 12th. So what I would like to do with you today is um, keep trying to integrate this material and answer your questions on um, how can we use this kind of an approach with our own kids. So I put some things up on the board for you. Uh, some of that will be familiar that uh, Karis has talked about. If you're reading along in the book, you'll see some of that. And I want to talk to you today about what I want to call evidence-based reaction rather than reactive reaction. That is, what is going on and what is a reasonable hypothesis so that I can start somewhere that I know is good. Because if you don't do this, then you may just go with whatever is natural for you. So if you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired... As a parent, then you've got those hungry, angry, lonely, or tired responses. And what I want for you to think about is what would be the um, principled response, the practiced response, the questions you want to ask yourself so that even if you are hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, you can click into that and you can feel like my response is going to be better than it otherwise would be. Perfect? Maybe not. Is it the absolute 100% correct response? Maybe not. But it gets you moving in the right direction, and it keeps you from feeling really guilty that you've yelled at your kids or you've missed the mark entirely. So that's what I want to talk to you about today, and then answer whatever questions and let you guys talk about it. So let's pray, and we'll get started. Lord, thank you for this time that we have to be together. Lord, and we pray for our number that has um, sick kids, that you would bless them. Um, Lord, and just... Pray um, that you would help for our children to stay healthy right now uh, and for our adults as well. Lord, we love you and we care about you and we care about each other and we ask for your protection on this church uh, as this coronavirus moves on through and as we have the flu and as we have um, hay fever and allergies and other sorts of things that are happening, that you would help hold us together as a community, relying on each other for good conversation, for strength and support. Uh, for empathy, uh, for guidance, and just for fellowship during this time when life is more uncertain than it normally is and we feel it to a greater extent. 
So help us, Lord, um, to use what I would even say evidence-based thinking when it comes to the virus, when it comes to our own children, and help us to not respond with a big fear or panic about what's going on, but instead, Lord, really move forward with some foresight and some prevention and some thinking and just a way that we can at least do the very best job that we can to be stewards of where we are in life right now. So help us as a community to do that and as a class to do that, as well as we invite you into our conversation today about how we can work with our own children in order to move them forward in godliness and in healthiness. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, As you look on the board, I've got uh, two words up here, prevent, prevent and intervene. And I want to talk to you just a little bit about these two words and hopefully um, help to whet your appetite to be prevention-oriented, which means more interaction, more forethought, more planning, more um, anticipation of behavior. Here's why. Um, An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And what we know is that to prevent a problem um, requires less energy Um, less focus, um, less um, interruption than to actually intervene. So if you are just moving along with your family and your family begins to have stresses and strains and you don't grab that, then when something explodes in your family, then the intervention is going to take a lot more energy and a lot more focus. It's why the government is coming out with prevention kinds of things with the coronavirus. They're, they're, they're living this out is, hey, we're just going to do this and let people kind of figure it out. And the idea is if you will do these kinds of things, then hopefully they're calling it flatten the curve. Maybe the virus won't spike as much and it will just be easier in the long run for all of society to deal with this uh, occurrence that is going to happen Um, on some level throughout our country. Parenting is very much the same thing. What do you see coming down the pike in your child? And what you want to do is try to lay a hold of that and help your children to process that even though they're going to experience it. What are you going to do about media? What are you going to do about culture? What are you going to do about friends? What are you going to do about their own biology? Once you get to know your children, they're going to be a lot more predictable to you than they are going to be to them. And you have to sort of manage that. And I want you to think of it as a steward. I mean, it's like a shepherd. You get to see what your sheep are doing. You get to see what people are doing. But they're not, the sheep sheep and um, your children are not yet quite capable of managing themselves. And so prevention is just you recognizing the the relational landscape, the biological landscape, the cultural landscape in which you live. And you are saying, hey, I want to do something to give my children some advanced skills. Are they going to use those skills all the time? Let us all give a resounding answer. No, they're not. Even if they know the right thing to do, are they going to do that every time? No. And the reason is, is that to live consistently with what we know to do is actually going to be difficult. And the more immature your brain is, and the more that you haven't been able to put it together with the value of doing it that way, the more you're going to be a line kicker. And so your children can grow up with you, and you could be telling them all kinds of things, but in their own experience, they do not see the value of what you're talking about. And therefore, they're going to go do their own thing. You see that throughout the entire culture. So what we're trying to do is hand off wisdom to our children so that they don't have to have a certain experience in order to have healthiness. 
we're trying to head some things off by simply saying, hey, your personality is such that you are likely to act X, Y, and Z. Audrey is, is very assertive. She's very self-confident, and she could run into a situation and not see all of the dangers and all of the ramifications of her behavior. She's like her dad. Austin, super emotional, very caring. If, if an emotion goes sideways, he feels that sideways emotion, and he can get lost in that emotion. Even though there's nothing bad that's going on, he just has a sense of, oh my gosh, something really bad is here. And he has the spiritual gift of awfulizing. I have the spiritual gift of minimizing. And so I'll minimize an issue, and he will awfulize an issue. He is just like his mother. And then there is Alex. Alex is a really interesting combination of the two of us in a more unpredictable way. Is that he was the hardest to kind of peg. In a certain situation, you're likely to do this, and then he would do something entirely different. So he has an array of five or six different kinds of behaviors that he will use because he has a greater variety of what I would call maybe genetic options that make sense to him. I'm super predictable. Van is super predictable, Audrey's super predictable, Austin's super predictable, and then Alex is like a blender. And, and you know, we're not really sure. You know, we, we've got a sense about him, but that sense did not happen until he was in junior high or senior high. It took us that long to figure him out because he was, he's an introvert, he's real quiet, he holds things in, but he has a great capacity on the inside to process and feel. So on all the personality traits, he's more of a blend of the personalities. You just wouldn't know it by the way that he behaves. And that took us a long time to figure out. I'm not a blend of all the personalities. I have a pretty strong blend, a pretty strong personality. Ben has a pretty strong personality. Audrey has a pretty strong personality. Alex does. And I mean, Audrey, Audrey and Austin do. But Alex is that real blend about what's going on. So um, to, to have prevention means that I, as an adult, have to take a look at what are my natural inherent challenges, weaknesses, if you will, because those aren't going to go away. I can have redemption, I can have strength. I can um, move forward in maturity, but I am wired in a particular way, and God doesn't change that genetic wiring. If you're an introvert, you pretty much stay an introvert. If you're an extrovert, you pretty much stay an extrovert. If you're a big thinker and you like to analyze, you tend to stay that way, even though you have emotional responses. If you're a big emotional responder, you, you will tend to still respond emotionally, even though you can do thinking. You, you come with a stewardship of uniqueness, which reflects the character of God. So a family becomes this place where all of that is to blend together in an acceptable way. You take every child with the way that they are designed and created, and you help them to be a good steward of that experience. And part of that is to help identify how can you get in trouble. Because when you get in trouble, you keep getting in trouble the same way. Can I get a hearty amen? It is the same thing over and over and over and over, even in your own life. And we have a tremendous capacity to be miserable and not change because we want the world to change around us 
without us changing, right? That's what happens. And so your children's misbehavior often is, I want you to change. I want the world to change. I want this to be okay. I want this to be okay. And, and the whole thing is, it's not okay. This is not the way that you should respond. This is not socially appropriate behavior. This is not the way that you should be responding. This is not okay. Well, I want it to be. 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 And when you tell them no, they pout, they cry. They say you, that you don't love them. And you don't care. And that goes all the way into adulthood. Because we have a whole society that is based on the idea of freedom without limits. Freedom always has limits. And if you don't recognize the limits of freedom, you keep blaming everybody else for those limits that you keep bumping into, right? You can't do whatever you want to do and have it be okay. And so this prevention and intervention is really, really important. When I learned this, this really helped my parenting in order to have a less crazy household. It was still crazy at times, but it was a less crazy because I knew that my children would get into certain kinds of predicaments. So when tests were coming up, Audrey would be perfectly fine. Austin would be really nervous. Uh, when there was a change, um, Audrey would embrace that change for the most part, and Austin would have diarrhea. <laughs> and so we would just have to kind of coax him through. When he went to kindergarten, he had diarrhea for two weeks. Because he just got super, super nervous. And Audrey's like, yes, kindergarten. I'm going to go to kindergarten. This is really great. Alex was just like, kindergarten. I'm like, how do you feel about that? We figured that he would be biting people and throwing things. And he, he actually was perfectly fine in kindergarten. And then he was a raging lunatic running all over the house when he got home. Um, because he has all that pent-up energy that he just sort of kept on. And then when, the minute he walked in that door, he had to get all that energy out. And he could get into lots of misbehavior if he didn't get the energy out. So you know the key is that you have to go to this biological area that Alex needed to get the energy out or he would, we would just end up being police officers and, and uh, prison wardens and we'd have a miserable time because he'd have so much energy that he was cooped up that he would just start to do whatever in order to get that energy out because he didn't have the self-control as a six-year-old. Seven-year-old, an eight-year-old, he had to just get outside. So we would just kick him outside and he would have to go play. Or he'd have to play by himself because he could not just manage that. He had a ton of it. And then he wanted to come home and have snacks. And my wife blesses people with sugar. And so there would be cookies and there would be ice cream. And we didn't really have nutritious snacks when you came home. We had mom snacks. And so you put a kid that already has pent-up energy and you whoop him up on some sugar. And all of a sudden you have extra energy. And so you just have to whoop him up outside. So we put a fence in the backyard, mostly for the dog, but it was also for the kids. <laughs> And so you can play anywhere you want to in the backyard, inside that fence. That's really great. But don't throw sand in people's faces. Um, so you, you're just moving back and forth between these. And here's what I want you to know. Whatever you are intervening on, you look for patterns. Patterns. That is the, one of the most important elements that you want is your children have patterns over and over and over and over. You have patterns over and over again. And when you get off your pattern, society is off its pattern right now. And when society gets off its pattern, you're going to see the stress points and how people manage the stress when society gets off its patterns. We are pack animals. And I don't, I don't mean that we're evolutionary created, but we are designed to socially function in groups. God is a God of a triune being, and we have the same characteristic to function linked together. And society functions linked together. And when something like the virus goes through and 
and those patterns begin to change, it panics people because of the lack of predictability. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what's coming up next. And people just feel this growing anxiety. I want you to think of the society as a microcosm of your child right now. You can see lots of similarities. When something doesn't happen the right way with your child, how does your child manage that? And so you can kind of see panic behavior. You can see withdrawal behavior. You can see angry behavior. You can see people attacking. You know, why are you having church? Why are you not having church? It's like, no, no, you're telling me more about you right now than you are about our decision to open or close, to self-isolate or not, to um, have school activities, to not have school activities. The, the way that people respond tell me an awful lot about what's going on because there's not one right way. There are just good ways. And good has a variety of expressions, correct? Same thing with parenting, is that you don't have to parent the way that we parented. Um, we don't have to parent the way that you parented. We have to parent in these good enough ways. I like that when uh, Chris says we want to be good enough. Good enough. I know that sounds cheap, but it's so true. And what you're looking at now is how do these two things function back and forth? We spend a lot of time on misbehavior. And discipline is not just intervention. We know that. But when I say, well, how are you disciplining your kids? We automatically think bad behavior, correct bad behavior. Okay. But what I want you to think about also is prevent and intervene. If I can prevent it and, and let you be wise and learn some things, that's going to be really great. But if not, then I'm going to intervene. I want you to know that you intervene on the earliest level possible to get self-control back. Don't let it go. You're watching that in society right now. We're trying to intervene so that we flatten the curve so it doesn't spike. That's really what's going on right now in a lot of the things that are happening. We want to intervene as early as possible to keep it from getting really, really horrible. I mean, that's just a principle of life. And if you just ignore something in your kids, what can happen is, is that they will view it as permission to keep doing it. And so you have to intervene. Now, this is listening to a book by... Um, uh, Len Lencioni, Pat Lencioni, called The Motive. And it's, it's all about why do people want to be in leadership. And he has said, and this is really true, that when you are in leadership, you have one of the most amazing jobs ever, but it also is a job that has some elements in it that we don't like. And one of the elements that we don't like is to have the hard conversation with people. Because if you ignore something, it just continues to replicate itself. Even in a business, he's talking about the business area, and we know that this principle really is true. And so if you just say boys will be boys, or, well, Audrey is just wired that way, or Austin, he just cries about everything, but you don't intervene, and you don't help process that, whatever that behavior is tends to become more crystallized, and it grows over time. And then it's stuck. And people say, well, that's just the way that I am. No, 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 no. That's the way you have become. It's not the way you are. You don't cry about everything necessarily, but it means you have a soft heart, and it means that you have emotional responses, and it means that you, you haven't figured out how you want to process something that's minor versus process something that's major. You have one way to handle it, which is to completely break down and cry about everything equally, as though everything is equally tragic, and it's not. Everything is not equally tragic. But it seems as though that's my only way of responding. Or Audrey, everything is not equally dumb. 
It's not equally ridiculous. It's not equally beneath you to have to talk to somebody who's crying. No, no, sometimes you do that. And sometimes you recognize that there are people in the world that really, truly are hurting and you want to interact with them. Well, how do you tell the difference? You, you haven't figured out how to tell the difference. And you can just dismiss somebody as being irrelevant or ridiculous because they're not as smart as you or they, they're not responding the way that you want to. And everybody goes flat based upon what, what makes sense to them. Okay? So if you don't do it, they're not, if you don't interact with them, they're not well-rounded. And what you're trying to do is give them this life skill. So comments between prevention and intervention. Thoughts, questions before we move on? It, it's, it's more of an art than a science is really what I want you to see. And some of you are more interventionists than you are preventionists. Some of you are more preventionists and you are interventionists. And what I'm looking at is what is a good blend for your child? Because you have to be the big person. Your, your child doesn't know, is, is not wise enough. And so you have to, and this is where the Holy Spirit comes in for me, is I do some things really, really well. And I do some things really, really poorly. And my parenting um, has really, really strong good things in and really, really poor things in. And it's those poor things that I want to really pay attention to and either get guidance, counseling, um, and I mean like with another parent who does that really well, um, help Vanna to recognize in me that I need to do a better job with that and I need the Holy Spirit's work. Because when I parent all alone, it's pretty obvious which way I want to go. I only want to do the things I like to do. I don't want to do the things I don't like to do. And between Vanna and me, we have enough of what we like to do covered that it works pretty well. But when one of us is gone, you can pretty well see what's missing. Because we just, I mean, I, I tend to not use words of affirmation as much as I should. Vanna tends not to raise issues as much as she should. When we're together, it works out okay. When we're separate, it gets a little bit more lopsided because we've relied on each other. And it's just the way that it is. So if you're ever a single parent for any period of time, it's hard because you have to be, we call it both mom and dad at the same time. But you have to have parenting of all the spectrums. And that's a cute way of saying you have to be mom and dad as though mom and dad automatically always do something different from each other. We do some of that, but it's hard to, to do all of that together. So questions, comments before we move on? Yep, yep. And so just when we're on our A game of intervening and make, like we've had to get rid of triggery snacks. Yeah. Um, I think things are smooth sailing. The busier we get, then I'm not preventing and intervening. Yeah, yeah. After school with a mini Alex, evidently. Yes, yeah. It gets really ugly quick. Yeah. Yeah, you are. This is one of the hard parts about parenting, especially for us that are more independent. We're, we're very wired the same way. And that is that we expect our children to be self-regulating at an earlier age. So how many of you want your children to be self-regulating at an early age? Just, there we go. I see all that smiling. Yoo-hoo. Yes, we do. And I, I am wired that way. Vanna doesn't really mind it as much, but I'm like, oh, no, let's get self-regulating at an early age. Um, that doesn't happen for most children. And especially when they get hungry, there's something that happens when they get hungry. Um, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I've talked with you about the amygdala before, but I just want to remind you of this. The hunger area and the sexual area is just nanofragments away from your emotional center. The hunger area and the sexual area are just barely separate from your emotional area. That's why we reach for food for coping and we reach for sex for coping. It's right there. It's like it takes no effort, no energy whatsoever to just flip into something that brings you that pleasure. And if you don't get what you want and you're hungry, then those negative emotions are there that are like, feed me now, and if you don't, I will eat you alive emotionally. Um, and people feel that way when they have a craving, and it goes right to those emotional areas, which is really important. Other comments or questions? I want to talk about the biology of that coming up here in just a minute. It's a great thing, because my mom used to say, Peter, when you were really tired, you were impossible to deal with. And she would call me a bear. I didn't think I was a bear at all. I thought I was being normal. <laughs> which lets you know from a child's perspective, it's normal to be angry when you're tired. It's normal to be grumpy when you're hungry because we don't notice that shift. Everyone else in the social strata notices it, but I don't notice it because to me it's normal to be grumpy and irritable when I don't feel good. And so I had to learn as a teenager and as an adult to process that natural tendency so that I didn't disrupt the relationships around me by attacking them simply because I was tired or I was hungry or I was stressed out in some way. Because I came with that natural wiring to fight when I was emotionally or physically uncomfortable. I wasn't the kid that you could sit and hug on a lap either. It was like, no, no, I feel like that's super confining. Well, Leave me alone. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. She's know, normal in her mind. Yeah, and this we've yeah. been able to, but mm -hmm. the counselor that she sees said, "Have her draw it out." Yeah, and that mm -hmm. has been huge. Yes, like, good. Gives her something to do. Like she draw. Drawing, but then, yeah, like she draws. So I, I hand her paper. Mm -hmm. She draws it. I couldn't tell what it was. Right. <laughs> are you stupid? <laughs> no. She did not say. She did not say, "Are you stupid?" Because yeah. I didn't say, "I can't yeah. tell what it is." I said, "Tell now." Tell, tell, tell me what it is. Yes. Yes. They're my eyes. Your eyes hurt? Yes, from these stupid new glasses. Yeah, I'm like, thank you. Yes, thank that's you. it. Yeah. Now I know where she Here's is. Here's an ibuprofen. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I, yeah. you know. Yeah. Yep. It was a. Yep. That's great. We got two options because that's our little girl and our little boy. If he's tired, he'll ball. Yeah. He's just hysterically crying. We're like, what's wrong? Yes. Yeah. My yeah. left toe now hurts. Yeah. Like, yeah. Random. Yeah. My hair hurts. Yeah. It doesn't hurt, Yeah. Tired. No, yeah. I'm not. Alex would cry at the table when he had to eat something he didn't like, and he would say that his elbow hurt. <laughs> oh, he said that yeah. this, food is, this food is making my foot hurt. I'm yeah. Like, yeah. 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 I don't like it. Yeah. I actually asked Alex about three years ago. Did you think that we would not let you eat if you said your elbow hurt? He said, Yes, I thought that. Again, children think this is normal behavior. Well, and then we have yeah. an Audrey who is horribly disgusted when he says and cries like that. Yeah, absolutely. That's stupid. What is wrong with you? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, isn't that fun? I, I think one Go of ahead. the keys for intervention for the two of us is at any given point, given our personalities, one of us is not handling the situation maturely. And so, because <laughs> yep. um, we've just allowed the kids to get under our skin. And so yep. normally it's not both of us. Normally mm -hmm. one of us is just... Heaven help you, family, if it's both of you. Yeah. 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 And so yes. uh, I, I think that we have given each other freedom like, hey, if I come tell you, like, I've got this one, then let me take care of it, and you, you go in the other room, and that's your signal that you, you're being a bear, like you're, yes. you're being ridiculous. Yes. So, yeah, it is. Yeah. Here, yep. so, Tag team wrestling. Normally, it's like the, the natural conflict that you know, Chris has with Abigail, our oldest daughter, and yep. so it's like they don't handle each other very well when they're both mad, and so someone has to step in that's not mad and you know yes yes and so he was I think like our second fun. son yeah yep. our first son because their personalities are very different so yeah yeah what you have to do is you have to, whichever one of you taps out has to go back and reestablish that relationship ultimately or else that student your, your um, child recognizes that one of you is not doesn't have as great of a relationship with them yeah. so and it's okay to just simply say it takes both of us sometimes to figure this out. And so we like to share in talking with you and let it go at that. So it seems really normal to them because you're modeling something really healthy and you want them to see it as healthy. They want them to feel it, interpret it as healthy on their end. So you say it takes both of us to parent our kids. And there's a book called Triggers, if you've ever read it. No. Oh, it's really But my whole life is called Triggers. I don't know about yours. It's an easy book. Triggers. It's got this angry mom on the front of it. Nice. I'm going to put that up here. Uh, Triggers by Angry Mom. <laughs> yeah, I don't know where the author is, but it's a really easy book. It just talks about like our internal triggers and our external triggers yeah. as parents. Yep, absolutely. Um, it was a fantastic read for me to Good. realize like what, what those are. What those yeah, are. everybody has them. I realized like um, when my blood sugar gets low, I am not the mm. best mom. Like I realized when I... Um, like, if I'm getting hungry and I'm trying to get something accomplished and I'm be feeling very frustrated, it's usually because I, like, can't focus because my mm -hmm. blood sugar's low. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And so, like, Excellent. I react then in a very harsh way. I've learned yeah. that. And so, like, I have to, I've learned, I have to start putting together lunch or dinner earlier than I usually would because mm -hmm. then I'm not reacting in mm -hmm. a prime time. Yeah. Good. And then also there's like, I mean, like there's other triggers, like, for example, feeling frustrated, like that you're going to be late. That's another thing. For me, I realize like I need the prevention part. It's like I need to put these things in place so that we can be out the door on time. Otherwise, I feel rushed and then I, I don't yes. react well Yes. as a parent. And I mean, I know we're talking about like, mm -hmm. You know, uh, with kids, but it still applies kids, to us. Like, it does, yeah. We realize when I realize my triggers, I realize some of my kids' triggers as well. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't, I was able then to prevent some of the conflict because I realized what our triggers were. Yeah. And so it was just an interesting Excellent. book. It gives a lot yeah. of insight. And then it talks about, you know, um, generational triggers, like how we adopt a lot of mm -hmm. our family's triggers. Um, and then pass them down to our kids. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. it's just like some of them not, well, a lot of them not being good. And so it was just a really good book yeah. that opened my eyes, but it allowed me to put in place more the prevention side of things, mm -hmm. which 
um, I am good at certain prevention, but not others. I yeah. just want you to like be in line. Yeah. And that's not going to happen naturally. So instead of realizing what my triggers were, I was able to go, okay, if we, if I do this, then I can help my kids do this, or I can help motivate them to do this in a more positive way instead of yep. it being yes. um, a battle all the time. Especially mm-hmm. going, for us, it was six years of, or five, almost five years of me really doing most of, like, the instruction at home. Mm-hmm. And so then he entered the picture being home a lot more with his job the last two years. And so mm-hmm. that's been a shift. That's real disruptive, isn't it, of, a, of just a regular pattern? Because yeah. so Vanna would comment that hard. when I would be home more, it would, be, it would kind of throw her system off. Yeah, and so and for became me, I've to go, I've learned to co-parent with him yeah. more That's the good. last yeah. year and a half. And, mm-hmm. it, and I think I feel like it's caused a little bit more conflict, but at the same time, it's been a good thing. Yeah. It's just learning how to do the preventions and interventions yes. together. Yeah, it's a different blend is what it is. Yeah. You know, and if you think of it as blend, and when one of you is not there, then you have to change the blend. And then, you know, whichever parent is home all the time, that's the parent that controls more of that home blend. And when both of you are there, it's more shared between the two of you. And so you have to learn what that flow is so that you can move in and out without a lot of disruption. Yeah. I'd had, I had to travel one week out of every month when our kids were little uh, with my job at Cookson. And Vanna would say, you know, I, sometimes I felt like a single parent. And when you would come home, you... She said it, this is the way that I heard it. I think it was said something like this, but it doesn't sound as bad as what she was conveying. It's like, you wrecked my whole system, which I knew that I did. And I said, well, I know that I do, but I still have a part in the family because she just had to figure out what to do when I wasn't there. And that was a stress on her. And then when I was there, she had to figure out what to do when I was there because I wasn't another kid but I was another person who would look at a job and I would do it differently or I'd put it in a different order or I wouldn't see why it was so important to put it in this order for her when we had all day to get it done. But she's, Van is very orderly. Different. Stay in. But they probably acted different. They did, yeah. Your yes, there, yeah. You know, so it yeah, and sometimes they would run to me and, and I would just kind of work on solving it, but it was a different it was an equally good solution, but it was a different way of doing things. And then Van and I would have to have conversations about, well, we do it this way. And I'm like, we do? I didn't realize that we did it that way. I thought we could do it like five different ways. Well, this is the most effective way to do it, and this is what works for me, especially when you're not here, and this is the way that I want to do it. And I'm like, well, I can't do it that way all the time, so you need a little bit of grace for me, but I will try. And, and we would have, like you guys, we would have this kind of back-and-forth discussion and we made it through it okay, but there just is a lot of grace that has to be applied when you've got a wonky kind of parenting system that's going on. So, did you find the name of the book? Yeah, it's the, uh, it's the author. Triggers. Yeah. Um, and it's uh, exchanging parenting reactions for gentle biblical responses, but it's by Amber. Ooh, nice. Leah, okay. L I A. Amber Leah. Oops, Amber. Yeah. Sorry. America. I know, America. <laughs> Amber. L E L I A L I A L I A Leah. Thank and, you. Uh, Wendy Leak. I got Wendy. Leak is oh, L. It's not Leak. Speak. S P E A K E. Okay. Speak with an E on the end. Okay. Thank you very much. I think it's probably aligned with a lot of what you're saying.
lot of work. What we're talking about, yeah. There's a lot of great information out there like this. And I think one of the reasons to talk about it and find these resources is to help us to learn the pattern of it. Because it's a, it is a um, cultured, disciplined, learned pattern. Nobody comes usually fully functional in this area. Um, okay, so let's go on. Um, and let me talk to you about these underlying issues by way of reminder. I'm really glad that you're talking about them because, again, you're just wanting to be thoughtful of what is your, I call it decision-making tree. What, what is the order that you want to go in? This is the order that I, that I learned to mostly flow in. Here's why. I never want my children to be identified in my mind as bad kids. I don't want to jump to their character or they're a bad apple or they're just doing something wrong all the time because there's a lot of shame and a lot of blame and a lot of esteem issues in children anyway when they struggle with fitting in or getting their assignments done or being able to read or being cut from a team. They, they naturally just take it out on themselves. I'm no good. I can't do this. Um, nobody loves me or you don't really care about me, that sort of thing. So I like to start with what is happening in their environment that is influencing them biologically. And I want to teach them that they are a reflection of what is happening to them biologically. And that's the first place, is that the reason that you go to bed at night at a reasonable time is so that you can get enough sleep to be able to function better. The reason that we have three meals on a regular time and we would always have our evening meal together and we wouldn't allow any electronics and we wouldn't have the TV on was so that we could have one time. That was like a family meeting and we wanted that to be fun. We made a rule, no problem solving at the table because we'd problem solve separately. The table would be a time to get together, tell stories, laugh. We never criticized the preacher. We didn't talk about teachers. It was just our time to be together to enjoy our meal. And when our children got to be teenagers, they would invite other teenagers into our evening meal just to see how that was done. Um, on Saturday, we often had a lunch together. And on Sunday, we had our big, Van is from a farm family, so we had our big meal on Sunday dinner. And then we would have like snacks or something smaller on Sunday night. But other than that, Monday through Saturday was sit-down dinner um, all the time. Uh, whether it was light or whether it was full, we would just do that. It was kind of the farm side of what Vanna brought. But that whole biological area, for us, we decided that we would organize ourselves along that way so that our children would have an environment that would push them toward the positive side of their, um, their development. I also got rid of yelling. Uh, Vanna was not a yeller. She was a slow cooker, kill you with eyes person. Um, she had that teacher tone and that look. And I was the more, if you step out of line and you don't listen after the second time, you know that you're out of bounds. And you need to get yourself in bounds immediately. And um, yelling is actually, in research, one of the worst things you can do for your kids, which creates alienation with them. And so I had to learn how do I take that temperamental trait of, I need you to stay within these lines and do that better. So I learned how to do that um, probably when Austin was maybe 9 or 10. So it took me about 12 years of parenting to figure out how to get rid of that to create an environment that was better for that. Um, then you've got the children's genetic uh, part, and we were talking a little bit about that. They are constantly bringing in information, and they are interpreting it, and it's going out in the world, or they're responding to it 
without actually intentionally interpreting it. Every personality has a grid to function in the world. And what you want to do is figure out what that grid is and help balance it out to where it's um, more appropriate for the various situations that kids are in. Um, and then you've got knowledge and learning on top of that. When you have a, a chaotic home environment with a child that has discernible weaknesses or challenges, it's going to make learning hard. It's one of the reasons that we serve lots of breakfasts to low-income families. It's hard to learn when you're really, really hungry. It's one of the reasons that um, through Web City Cares and other programs, we're trying to reach the one-fourth of people in our area that don't eat as well or have as good nutrition. Because it, it, on top of this, it negatively impacts their ability to process information and function. Um, in really extreme impoverished areas, it creates cognitive limits. If you go to Haiti, for example, um, a lack of nutrition as well as a chaotic environment keeps adults in a lower developmental level to where abstract thinking is much more difficult for them. So self-governing and taking concepts, biblical concepts, which there's a lot of abstract biblical concepts, like love God and love people, but you don't have a checklist of what you do every single day. You have to kind of create that. A lot of times churches and organizations are very concrete with do's and don'ts and rules and regulations, which are what you do with elementary school kids. And you do that for the adults because you do it because they can't conceptualize higher abstract thinking if they don't get enough nutrition. So it's really a, a very important consideration when you're looking at knowledge and learning. So if your children are having trouble learning, go back to number one and number two. What's actually happening here, and there might be a limitation here biologically, a genetic limitation. We know that if they're on the spectrum, the autism spectrum, there will be challenges that they have. Um, but their brain might naturally gravitate to relationships over mathematics or science and math over relationships. And you just need to know that so that you can help them to learn what they need to learn so that they can function within the society. Then you have character traits which flow as a result of all of this. Your character traits are your do's and your don'ts of what really truly makes you the right kind of a person, if I could dare in this culture to say that. I think there is a standard. I think that there's a way of treating people. Um, everybody wants to be treated that way, no matter what their behavior is. Um, and the culture is very, very sensitive. So we call it PC, inclusive language. You can see that, that we want a certain kind of interaction. But for us, this is a Christ, this is a Christ reflection. So it comes with certain predetermined values. And that's what irritates non-Christian people is... Am I willing to really look at what does it mean to bring in who Christ is and build that around our family? So I would tell my, my kids, we are a Christian family. We're not just any kind of a family. We are a Christian family, and these are our values, and this is what we believe in, and this is why we've organized our family the way that we have so that our faith is well integrated into our family. And Audrey had a friend who went to another church in town with a family that was nominal, barely attended, and he said to us one time we were chatting, you are the only family that I know of that actually practices your faith every day. And that was really sad to hear. You know, that here he had grown up in southwest Missouri, such a churched, if we could use that area where they're all over, but getting into daily life is what we're trying to do here. So the class has been focusing on how do you get to number four? 
And what you're looking at now are these are some of the components you want. And then the last one would be I'm looking at outside influences. Now, you can push outside influences up here depending on the age of your children. But when you are controlling your children when they're young and in preschool and um, being involved with them, um, you are their outside influence. Church is their outside influence. Their Christian friends are. But as they go out into the world, and if you use public school or you allow for them to be more interactive on social media, you've got more outside influences that you have to help them gravitate to. And the danger of outside influences is if we don't teach them how to process them, once they experience them, they can be so enamored with them that they will accept them over what you have actually trained until they're like the prodigal that goes out and lives a life and figures out it isn't the way that it should be. And then they have to figure out how do you make um, a synchronized approach between I live in the world, but I need to be different from the world. And that gets a little bit difficult. So as teenagers, you're trying to help them to do that when their experience is really low. So you offer two things. I just want you to know this, that your children do not have. And you can certainly talk to them about this in an appropriate way. You have more knowledge, intelligence, and wisdom than they do. And you have more life experience. Now, they're living in a culture that says, I'm just as smart as you are, and I don't need your experience. Thank you very much. Because it's all about me and what I want to do. But you have two things that you never, never back down from. Your intelligence what you have learned, your wisdom, and secondly, the experiences that you have had. You must never lie to them, and you never withhold the truth from them. You cannot do either one of those. You have to say, I know that this doesn't fit in with your peer group, but here's what I have noticed. I know this doesn't fit in with what's going on um, with a lot of families at high school, but here is something that, here's a piece of information that's really important to you that you don't probably see as critical right now, but I want you to have it so that as you get going, you can see that this is really true. The very first time I did this with Audrey, she was in junior high, and people were starting to date. And she's, we were, were just chatting about her friends that were dating high school boys. She was in seventh grade, and they were dating ninth graders. Uh, she was in eighth grade, and they were dating tenth graders. And I said, I want to run an experiment with you, but I don't want to sound mean. Okay, that goes back to knowledge and experience. And I want you to know that most of the girls, pretty much all of them, I would think, that are going to date at this age and date an older boy probably do not have a really good relationship with their dads or do not have a good relationship with their stepfathers or the men that are moving in and out of their lives. Because there is this sense of, I'd like to have relational stability, and this older boy should have it. Now, we know that that is not true, that older boys don't have it to stabilize a teenage junior high girl. And then I told Audrey that oftentimes when you date at that level, in two years you'll be sexually active. That's what the research says. So if you start at 12, you're in bed having intercourse at 14. I said, the reason that you're not going to date until 16 is that that is true if you start dating at 15. It still is a true statistic. And I want you to be pretty much an adult by the time that you have to have a relationship that has grown in intimacy enough that there could be that kind of sexual pressure on you on average. And she just looked at me like, I can't believe you're talking to me about this. And I said, and here's what I want you to know is I just want you to observe it. 
because I want you to support your friends to be in the best relationship possible. And about three months later, she said, you know, you're right. I'm watching this. And some of these girls are really, really hurt. And they're expecting a lot out of these boys. Okay, you have knowledge and wisdom and your own personal understanding of things and you have experience. And you will more than your children. When they get to be adults, they still think you're stupid. They still do. I mean, our kids look at us now because, you know, well, you're like old. And I'm like, yes, I am. And I have had 40 years of experience on this subject. And I'm speaking out of those years of experience professionally. So I have way more experience than you do. And I still get that little. Uh, yeah, and I'm, and I'm not afraid of it. Now, Vanna doesn't like to talk that way. And I'm not, I'm not, mean, I'm not mean about it. My, I'm not renegotiating my relationship with you. But I am letting you know I stand for something. I'm letting you know that I'm giving you the best information that I have. I'm letting you know that if you go down this road and you're not careful, it's not going to take you where you want to go. And still, as adults, I'll have that conversation. I'm having it now about the coronavirus with people. If you totally isolate yourself and you don't want anything to do with anybody, you have to watch out for your own social health and well-being. It may take you, and I'm not saying don't do it. I'm saying you've got to prepare because now they're saying, hey, don't be alone. Because you need social support and help. But people get so panicky about how do you do that. And so I just am I'm talking with people. I had a person that, who's recently widowed, probably in the last three years. And she said, I would just always talk to my husband about this. Can somebody just tell me this is going to be okay? I said, yes, it's going to be okay. And I gave her a hug when we were done. I said, I'll be happy to step into that kind of role for you as a, an older man. I can do that now with gray hair. I'm a little safer. It's not like so creepy. You know, I will do that for you, and I'll talk to you about this because I recognize the value of friendship. I'm not a husband. I'm a friend. And, yeah, you can talk to me about whatever you want to, and I promise I will give you the best information that I have, always. Never, never lie and don't withhold the best information that you have, and you become a credible person, even if they don't like what you say. And you just begin that when they're little and love them and help them because this is what's actually going through um, their lives. And number four and number five are where they're going to be as adults. What is their character and what are the outside influences on their life? Comments that you might have. It's 1026. Got a little bit. 
So the very first thing that I would say is we're in this together. You know, and I want you to know that we're not going anywhere. And if something happens, um, we are always in this together as a family. And we will, we will face this head on and we will do it as a unit. And then the second one is your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Isn't that interesting? Your protection and your guidance provide comfort. And that's really what we're trying to do within the coronavirus. You know, that's what the government's actually trying to do. Hey, we're in this together. Communities are in this together. Share with your neighbors. Don't isolate yourself so much that you're, you know, that, that you get all really trapped with that. But remember that you have to protect yourself and that here's the best guidance to be able to do that. Those are the principles over and over again. And, and in a situation like the coronavirus, that's what you're saying with your most intimate group is if you get sick, if for some reason you don't feel well, I'm here for you. I'm not being isolated from you. I'm not going to go anywhere. I'll stay home with you if we need to do that. Um, you, you have us. And there is tremendous comfort in us. I was just talking with one of our older people who's got um, COPD and is on oxygen. And I said, you know, the day may come coming up here where you should not be here. I just saw her this morning. You should not be here. Uh, I said, but we are in this together. And she said, yeah, I know. I, can't, I cannot compromise my health, but I'm giving her guidance because I don't want her here if there's an outbreak because she could catch something here because she's a, the vulnerable adult. And the presence is we are in this together, and we're going to figure out ways to keep that connected. This is the little triad. You say it over and over and over and over again, and your, your um, sons and daughters and us, we get so used to it that we really notice it when it's not here. So even though we're heading into this uncertain time where if, if the virus does come here and it impacts us, these are the principles that we live by. And we're living them within our own family all the time, which I think is really important. Yeah. I like that because um, our daughter is a warrior and she's very smart, so she hears all this stuff. Absolutely. And um, last night with the policy of the hospital possibly change, it's affecting her. Yes. And so she... I don't think she realized that the prevention side of things is going to affect her yeah. as much as she, you know, she just yeah. like, it's change and I don't like change. And like, like realizing that she kind of verbalized, like, I don't like change. I don't like this, that this is all changing and affecting me. And I'm like, mm -hmm. amen. That's mm -hmm. all we all feel right now. Yeah. You know, preach it, sister, preach it. You know, yeah. Absolutely, but, but, but that like affirmation that, is good. That yeah. verse in terms of like emphasize, because she knows Psalm 23, I think yeah. I could really emphasize the presence and the protection yeah. and guidance side of things. Yeah. Um, you know, and I've said, you know, God is with us and he's going to protect us and take care of us. But I think taking it to that psalm and really reading that and putting it in that light, mm -hmm. I feel like will be helpful because she does yes. Yes. tend to be our... Warrior. Yeah. Well, and the medical profession is being your shepherd. If we can, we can kind of extend the biblical <laughs> metaphor, that's what's going on. They're not being bossy. They're not trying to be mean. They're not trying to take away experiences. They are providing the presence and the protection and the guidance in this situation that maximizes your safety as a family. And they're just being a shepherd. And talking about it that way takes the sting of they're just being mean. And, you know, the government, as much as we have a dysfunctional government, is trying to do the same thing. You know, when you couch it that way, you can see the intention behind it, and we can join in with that intention a lot more easily.
Other comments that you'd make? It's about time to go. Let me check my time here. Yep. All right. What I'd like for you to really be thoughtful on after all of this is to just keep becoming more and more aware of how all of this fits together. Um, it, it took me about three or four years after going through graduate studies on this and then two more years after having my own children to really see how it integrated. This was a whole different way of thinking because I grew up with very reactive parenting. Uh, a mom that just tried to be really, really nice to offset my dad, who was, who was more distant and reactionary. And we sort of were raised on our own. Um, we got to watch, well, our parents screened the television because we had three channels then. They could turn it on and off. Um, but we got to listen to whatever music we wanted to when we were teenagers. Whatever was on the radio, they didn't really care. Uh, we got to hang out with whatever friends we really wanted to unless... I, there was one time that one of my friends kind of went off the deep end, went to psych hospital, and um, that was the only time that they wanted to restrict any behavior. We, we could go to any parties we wanted to. Uh, we were pretty much just sort of, as long as we didn't show any signs of big distress, we could, we could live that way. When I got to be um, an adult, there were certain areas within my own temperament that were not well-rounded. They were more grounded because I became a Christian at 13, seriously, studied on my own through high school because I grew up in a dysfunctional family and I thought it's got to be better than this. There has to be something better than this because I hate this. And while I still had a lot of conflict in my family, I left that family without having some skills developed. And I decided that what I wanted to do was make sure that my children had those kinds of skills better developed. You don't really know what's going to happen until you have to get out there and use them on your own because that supportive network of mom and dad shifts when you move out. Um, but my goal was to follow this and begin moving them forward. And I accomplished, a num Vanna and I accomplished a number of goals. We didn't get every single goal done. Like Vanna wanted to still be a mom. and She still did their laundry for them. And even in college, she said, bring your laundry home and I'll do that for you. It was a tangible reminder that she was still a part of their lives. It was a mom issue, not a child issue from that standpoint. And so they had, they've had to figure out their laundry on their own. Um, they didn't have a lot of money, so we've just kind of coached them through some of their money stuff. Uh, we bought their cars for them, and I said, you know, if you, if you work hard at, at school, we will purchase a car for you and take care of that as long as you manage it really well so that you can get scholarships and you can move forward. And we, we developed some of that. Not every family is going to do that, and I don't think every family necessarily should. But we, we just sort of created this system for our children, and there were lots of strengths to it. We did not get everything done. I just want you to know that. We got enough done that it was helpful. And then we just continued to work with them as emerging adults is what it's called. And uh, just try to keep our relationship going. Now as adults, we work to keep as good of a relationship as we can while they are making all the decisions in their lives. And it's sometimes it's hard to watch that because I have two things that, that I have more of that they don't have. And sometimes you just have to keep your mouth shut and pray. Sometimes. Less than what they used to. Because they pretty much know what I'll say. I have trained them well. I have. Because I'm like, this is what I stand for. And when they go, you know, they knock on that a little bit, um, 
I just say the same thing back. I said, I, I do stand for these things. Like one is alcohol. I have two children that drink more than I would prefer and one that doesn't drink very much, but I come from an alcoholic family and I have warned them. I have said, this is a danger and you just need to know that and I'm staying away from it. While I'm not opposed to it philosophically or in its practice, you need to know. We, I don't understand how alcoholism works, but it runs deep in both sides of your family and you have to be aware of that. And so they claim that they are paying attention but I just, I hope that they are. You know, I just hope that they are because I think they drink more than they should. That's me being overly cautious on that side. And then one that really doesn't drink that much at all, which I'm really pleased about because I'm looking at that as a good prevention way to make sure it doesn't ever reach up and bite you. So I, I get nervous, to be honest with you, sometimes at what they do. But I'm like, I'm still here, and I don't criticize. And whenever we go out, I don't buy it for them. They have to buy it themselves. And um, it's just, I said, you can do this, but I just want you to know this is a big issue in our family. And one of them said, the sensitive one, Austin said, well, I don't know if we should drink in front of mom and dad because they don't. So he's tried to get Vanna to drink. I, I have a reason not to from some surgery, and so I just use that as a good excuse. And they're like, Vanna, mom, you should try this. And she's like, I don't really like it. And so she's actually had to put her foot down to say, you have to let me have my values because you want me to let you have yours. And it's like, that's a big deal for her. I mean, we're in that phase as trying to, how do you bring in different values into a family that does not embrace them? It's not like they're sinful and evil. There's just a level of danger that we see that they don't see. They didn't grow up in an alcoholic family. They don't see the dangers of alcohol. Here's what I have decided, and I'll just close with this. Children that grow up in a Christian family that are not exposed to some of the horrors and difficulties of what it means to live without Jesus or <coughs> caught in an abusive situation don't see the danger in some of those entrance-level behaviors. I have three kids that grew up in that kind of a family. And I'm noticing that as they are getting older is they talk in a certain way and they interact in a way that I thought they had accepted values based upon what we grew up with and the wisdom of the church. But because they don't see dangers in it, with their own experience, because experience is like the top thing, not somebody else's wisdom uh, for this generation, they're less likely to embrace that without skepticism. And that's hard on me, to be honest with you. In the, yeah, I've raised them well. I've just had to just come to terms with that. And I'm like, I'm still here if something happens. And if it does, I mean, if something happens in their 30s and something collapses on them, it's like, what do you want to do next? It's not like I'm going to rub your face in it. And I'm not going to say, see, I told you this was dangerous. But it's like, well, what, what do we do to keep moving you in as healthy of a way as possible, in a, as Christ-honoring a way as possible? And it's a little... It's hard to watch when you have two things that they don't have. So let's close with a word of prayer, and let's pray about those, and I'll let you guys go. Lord, thank you so much for this time, and thank you so much for um, how you work in our lives. We do pray, Lord, that you yourself will capture the heart of our children so that they will see that you have more knowledge and ability and wisdom, and you have more experience, and they can lean into that for all the shortcuts in life. I look at the scripture so much as shortcuts, shortcuts to a healthy life, shortcuts to an abundant life, shortcuts to a guilt-free life. Yet we live in a culture that says, eh, I'm not really so sure. 
And so we pray that you'll capture the hearts of our children and keep moving us forward using these principles that we're talking about under your lordship and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.